hear Wild Cornell Medicine's physicians and healthcare providers. Check out the entire podcast library at wildcornell.org slash podcasts. Welcome to Wild Cornell Medicine CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm your host, Dr. John Leonard, and today's topic will be prostate cancer screening and treatment. I'm very happy today uh, to be joined by Dr. Jim Hu, a urologic oncologist and director of the LaFrac Center for Robotic Surgery at Wild Cornell Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. Dr. Hu is internationally renowned as a surgical innovator and a health services researcher. His areas of clinical and research expertise include prostate and kidney cancer, and his research interests have been funded by the Department of Defense, the National Cancer Institute, and the Livestrong Foundation. Jim has performed thousands of robot-assisted prostatectomies, laparoscopic, robotic, and open procedures. So he really is uh, an expert in our topic today. So Jim, thank you for joining us. It's great to have you here. Thanks, John. I'm delighted to be here today. That's great. And it seems like the area of prostate cancer is particularly kind of multidisciplinary and has a lot of, um, you know, beyond the, the technical aspects of it, um, which are obviously important and, and challenging. Um, you know, what we're going to talk about today, I think, is one example of how the kind of uh, implementation of what you do when and how and for whom um, remains a big thing and probably is going to remain a big thing for a long time, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, one of the overarching themes of medicine these days is overdiagnosis and overtreatment. And I think as as a prostate cancer expert, you're not uh, you're typically not just operating moving people's prostates robotically. Now it's it's kind of when to do the right thing, so right. to speak. Right. So so we're going to get more specifically into prostate cancer screening in a second, but just at a high level, and I know you have a lot of uh, training and experience in health services research. I mean, why why is this so complicated? It would seem like it would be very easy, you know, on the surface. I'm sure many people in our audience are like, well, why can't I just go to my doctor? He tells me or she tells me what to do. I do it. And then what? why is this so controversial and not cut and dried? Is it just the nature of the data that we have or what? Sure, I think it, well. The, I think it goes back to when we all took the Hippocratic Oath: first do no harm, and we're recognizing that in a lot of things, not only beyond just PSA and prostate cancer screening, that that oftentimes screening can cause mental anxiety. There's false positives that that patients start to worry about. Some of these tests, for instance, a biopsy for the prostate, increasingly there's more uh, drug resistant bacteria, so your risk of infection goes up. It's not very comfortable. And, and in addition, prostate cancer typically grows very slowly. And so, so even though we're diagnosing something, there may be six or seven years before it may spread outside. And, and as we, and the, and the sweet spot, of course, for, for this problem is older men. And so one has to take into account life expectancy and look at the quantity of life as well as the quality of life. Right. So uh, before we get in the details of the data, at what point and who should be starting to think about, should I get screened for prostate cancer? And, you know, and then kind of walk us through the process of how you approach that with an individual, just in a general sense. Absolutely. So I think the, in more recent years, really back to 2009, there were two landmark studies, randomized trials that were published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which of course is one of our uh, highest impact journals. And, uh, and really what we gleaned from one of the studies, the European study, in fact, is that the study design was just that men started screening at the age of 55 and they stopped at the age of 69. Mm-hmm. And in that study, there was a benefit to prostate cancer screening. We, we saw a decline in, in the mortality 
uh, uh, associated with or death from prostate cancer. And so that's really because of the way that that study was designed, the, the entry being 55 years young. And so, so I think that's where the guidelines or the opinions of experts have, have somewhat converged. And so presently, um, for instance, I, we used to, as a, the American Urologic Association or a lot of these professional organizations, would want annual screening starting at the age of 50. But based on that randomized trial, we're saying do start at the age of 55. Uh, do it every three or four years rather than annually. Family history hasn't been chronicled as well in the past. We're just starting to understand that more with genome sequencing and so forth, inheritable prostate cancer. And so if there is two or more relatives, uh, primary relatives, your brother, your father, and so forth, um, that have prostate cancer, it's thought that one would want to uh, start the PSA screening earlier. And also African-American men, because of course the European study included very uh, very little uh, men of, that were not of European descent. We know less about, but we do know that African-American men in the United States typically are diagnosed with more aggressive prostate cancers. They have a pro- higher prostate cancer-specific mortality. They're more likely to die from it. And so it's thought that screening could uh, happen earlier for those men as well. Mm-hmm. And then are there any other besides uh, that risk factor others? I know uh, BRCA genetic background is also uh, at least uh, Im- influences prostate cancer. Any Maybe just briefly on that as well as anything else that would perhaps get somebody screened earlier or differently. Absolutely. So so if in that family history, if you have a, a your mother or a sister who has uh, breast cancer ovarian cancer, has this uh, screening, the genomics test done and has BRCA, certainly that influences, and as you said, uh, uh, BRCA2 in particular and BRCA1 as well can influence the uh, uh, greater risk for having prostate cancer as, more as, as well as a more aggressive prostate cancer. When they've looked at metastatic prostate cancer, what's already spread outside, uh, in fact, about 12% of men have one of those BRCA-type mutations or a, a DNA mismatch repair mutation. And so I think we're starting to just uh, scratch the surface at looking at genomics. Uh, I think in terms of whether that's actionable or not, um, I think we're, we're starting to make – there's a, a meeting just last year in Philadelphia where there was expert consensus that, that, again, if you had two family members and so forth, you should do it earlier um, and, uh, and, and consider getting uh, the somatic testing uh, or, or looking at if these, these changes were something that you acquired over one's lifetime – and if that's positive, then to consider looking at whether it's a germline or a mutation that was inherited. So more or less, it sounds like uh, unless you have a predisposition or a risk factor, 55 is more or less the age where, where most people are going to be thinking about this. So then obviously the next question is, well, okay, how can I be screened? And, and I know PSA checks, the physical exam, other testing. Give us your sense of that for the average risk kind of person. Sure, absolutely. And so, so one caveat and, and I know we have very sophisticated listeners and so when you know when these experts sit around the table they're 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 not just prostate cancer experts they're public health experts there's internal medicine infectious disease you know uh, pediatrics and so when you look at the US preventative services task force they have a they're looking at things from a 40,000 foot view now now we do have various studies that that look at men who had a a blood test in their 40s and it was actually longitudinal studies for other reasons, like looking at, you know, did they develop heart disease? But because they kept such a great natural history of what they eventually developed over time, it was found that, you know, if you had a, 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 a PSA in your 40s and it was less than one, then your lifetime risk of dying from prostate cancer was less than 10%. And so although, you know, we're, we're speaking of it from a level one, you know, with these randomized trials, 
There is some evidence that if you want to get a PSA in your mid-40s or during your 40s and extremely low, then that can guide how frequently you may want to check your PSA once you get into your mm-hmm. 50s. So I just wanted to mention that caveat sure. because I think that that is a, you know, that's something that most, you know, one's not going to have to pay out of pocket for a PSA. Uh, now, going back to your original question, how do you typically do it? Yes, uh, typically there's been a, a PSA test as well as a, a prostate exam. Uh, the the uh, traditional uh, most exciting part of the visit for a lot of men uh, but um, but by and large, I think even even the American Association or Academy of Family Practitioners, a lot of people are moving away from that traditional prostate exam because there's very few people that are going to have a, a nodule or without a elevated PSA. Mm-hmm. And it also gets into the controversy of what normal versus abnormal is. Now we have age-specific cutoffs. There's the absolute cutoff of four. Being above four was abnormal. Uh, there's more sophisticated ways of looking at this, get a prostate size and PSA density or, you know, using PSA as the numerator over the the volume of the denominator. So mm-hmm. there's the PSA kinetics and in, in, and it's almost a, a field of its own because right. we, we, we really, you know, it kind of sheds some insight into the controversies. Right. So so uh, a patient comes in, the routine screening, PSA is below four you know, they're kind of good to go for, for a while. And, and, and so what about, is, is that, I don't want to misrepresent it, but is that basically the, the story and, and less, less focus on the physical exam part? I mean, still do it, don't do it. You know, how do you, what do you advise people? Sure. Uh, yeah. So there's definitely, as, as you mentioned, there's definitely some subjectivity in, in whether you feel a nodule or not. And mm-hmm. we have to keep in mind that some of them may be what we call false positives mm-hmm. oftentimes. And so, so I still do the, as part of prostate cancer screening, I will still do the prostate exam because mm-hmm. we do know that there's some very aggressive or what we you know, like to throw around the word poorly differentiated cancers that aren't going to produce a high level of PSA. And so in theory, you can still have prostate cancer when your PSA is normal because as we know, normal is, is 95% of the population. Um, as far as the cutoffs, I tend to use what's called age-specific PSA cutoffs. Mm-hmm. And so going back to that example for a man in his 40s, um, you know, that person's PSA should be less than 2.5. Mm-hmm. You know, for someone in their 50s, it should be less than 3.5. Someone in their 60s, less than 4.5 or 70s, less than 6.5. So there's a jump. And the reason for that is that we know that as men get older, there's the the process of benign prostatic hyperplasia, why men have to feel like they, the urine comes out slower, they don't empty their bladders completely, which is separately distinct, but that's also a manifestation that the prostate enlarges or gets bigger as we get older. And so that n- normal level increases as we get older as a result. Got it, got it. And then I understand just from having an occasional patient who where this has come up, um, that there are some kind of fancy versions of PSA tests out there, and maybe in an, and my sense is this is kind of a, an added level of either reassurance or concern based on what these are. But maybe if you could just tell us kind of what their role is as of today. And absolutely. And so um, I, I think this 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 area cropped up, if you will, because if someone had one abnormal PSA, you know, I, I think one wants to be a little bit more judicious rather than going straight to prostate biopsy. And so. So there's been studies that have shown that PSAs can, if you, you drew one in two or three months, that it's going to change. So there's natural variation. Um, the first uh, PSA that that was that came out to try to address this question, if your PSA was between four and ten, there was getting the, the percent uh, free PSA, 
And the higher the percent for EPSA, the less likely that an elevation was due to prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also now a, a what's called a PCA3 test, mm -hmm. and that's if you have a, a elevated PSA, the FDA approves it only in the setting of a prior negative biopsy, and the PSA is consistently elevated. Then the the urologist or physician does a prostate massage, has the patient urinate, and there's a there's a protein in the urine PCA3, and if it's above a, a cutoff of 30 then that's considered higher and a, a biomarker or a, another reason to repeat the biopsy. Uh, more recently, there's, there's a test called the, the 4K mm -hmm. that looks at different isoforms of PSA, and it's resulted as a percent chance that a man may have what we term a clinically significant prostate cancer. So we don't want to find the ones that are indolent and slow growing and uh, isn't going to cause harm. And so that test is standardized to your risk of having clinically significant. And so so these are all the biomarkers or additional blood tests that one can have. And there's other ones similar to 4K, like a PHI or prostate health index uh, that try to guide uh, whether or not one needs a biopsy. More recently, there was, and we were fortunate at Cornell to be part of an international randomized trial that was published in New England Journal of Medicine called the Precision Study, where a man with an elevated, single elevated PSA was randomized to getting an MRI, prostate MRI, versus just going straight to a regular transrectal ultrasound-guided biopsy. And in that study, we found that if you had an elevated PSA, got an MRI first, you could avoid a biopsy in roughly 30% of men. That is, the MRI did not see anything abnormal in the prostate or there was low suspicion. Uh, but then if you had a, what they term a PIRADS 3, 4, or 5, the, the MRIs are scored on a, a five-level category, then those men went on to biopsy, and it was found that 36% of the men that in the MRI arm who went on to biopsy had detection of a, a Gleason grade seven, that's a clinically significant cancer higher, whereas in the arm where everybody went, underwent biopsy with the transrectal ultrasound, um, it was only 26%. So there was a 12% absolute increase. And that's level one evidence. And, and I think we're seeing it, at least in Europe, the Europeans have adopted getting an MRI now after an elevated PSA as part of their professional guidelines. I worry about widespread adoption of those guidelines here in the United States because not everywhere is equipped to do a high-quality MRI, nor do they necessarily have an experienced radiologist who can make that reading. And so you can see how that may, again, with that public health background, you may be looking at the 40,000-foot view of how our healthcare dollars are spent. And I think over time, the expertise will develop, uh, but it, it may be a little too early just to reflex to a MRI just with an abnormal PSA. So I, I want to get into in a second. So it seems like there's a lot of, and, and the tests you just described, whether it's more sophisticated blood tests or imaging, it sounds like there's a lot of dancing around who with a borderline or elevated test should get a biopsy. And I want to get into that in a second. But you know, if you look at a hundred standard, and I know I'm asking you to generalize, and it probably depends on risk and age. So, if a hundred men come into a primary care practice, let's say they're 55-ish or or 55 to 65 in the screening range, you know, what percent will have like a stone cold, everything's great, PSA, see you, you know, in in a couple years, versus what percent of men is it? 10 percent, 20 percent, where the PSA is funny enough that you have to now think about these other machinations, ballpark wise. Sure, I, I so I. I I wish I had firm statistics to give you an exact answer. I would. So we know, for instance, when when a man got PSA screening starting at the age of 50, and everyone did it, you know, the primary care doctor just checked off as your an, annual blood test, mm -hmm. get a PSA. 
and this was just as recently as, say, seven years ago, if you look at the incidence of prostate cancer at that time, it was 230,000 U.S. men a year. And so at that time, your lifetime risk of di being diagnosed with prostate cancer was one out of six. Mm -hmm. Now, as we are, uh, uh, you know, have moved back the age of PSA screening and mm -hmm. it doesn't happen as much, that lifetime risk of prostate cancer is one out of nine. Mm -hmm. And so often, going back to your question, kind of doing the math backwards and ballparking yeah. it, a, a biopsy is positive about a third of the time. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about, let's say, one out of nine U.S. men, you know, are diagnosed with prostate cancer, you multiply that three, you know, so maybe one out of three men mm -hmm. had an abnormal PSA, underwent a biopsy. Mm -hmm. And so you can see that the scope of the problem is, is pretty common in terms right. of how, how much we look for it in the United States. Also, as we live longer, you know, the Western diet as obesity has been associated with a lot of other, the increased prevalence of other cancers. I think that's why in the United States, it's a, it's a, it's still the, the, the most commonly diagnosed prostate men, cancer in men, uh, but, but also the, the second leading cause of death in men. So, so why not get a biopsy? I mean, from the standpoint and, and just walk us through how you think about it with a patient. So, you know, the PSA is slightly elevated. I'm worried I might have, you know, I don't want to have prostate cancer. If I do, I want to get it dealt with quickly. I mean, it, it seems to me like there are issues around the procedure itself and the pros and cons of the, the biopsy procedure itself. And then obviously, which maybe we'll get to in a second, the concept of, well, you might find a cancer that you're not going to do anything about, or you might not do anything about. So kind of frame that that how you think about that with with patients because it strikes me that all these tests to say yes or no biopsy are geared toward maybe a better um, uh, uh, selection of patients for biopsies so so how do you think about that absolutely I think that so so and I, I think you hit the nail on its head when the, the United States Preventative Services Task Force made its recommendations originally in 2012 against PSA screening. They assigned it a grade D recommendation saying there's very little benefit. I think they were, you know, there was a study that sh the U.S. study, we didn't realize at the time the amount of contamination or that, you know, in the control arm, a lot of men had PSA testing. So it looked mm -hmm. like there was no difference in, in whether or not um, it affected mortality. But now we know that it was heavily contaminated. So you're comparing apples to apples rather than apples to oranges. Going back to your original question, so one of the things that they was mentioned as a reason not to do PSA screening is that the harms of screening, of course, outweighed the benefits. And one of those harms is that a lot of prostate cancers are overtreated, meaning that if you had a positive biopsy back then for an indolent or low-grade cancer, it was almost a reflex to treat that with either surgery or radiation. And so one of the things that's happened now is that we know that of all men diagnosed with prostate cancer, which in the U.S. is about 170,000 men annually, that, that more than half of them now go on to active surveillance, meaning that it's just monitored with PSAs every six months, a repeat biopsy in the future. And so, so I think the knowledge based on some of these longitudinal studies that have happened in the UK, um, I, I, I'm sorry to say more than in the US uh, because of the biases inherent in some of these trials, uh, is, is that we've learned that a lot of prostate cancers are not harmful. And so so I think that the now the decision to undergo a biopsy, if you're diagnosed with Gleason 6 prostate cancer, and you alluded to the New York Times earlier, you know, one of the things a few years ago, if someone came in, they had inland prostate cancer, I'd pull up in our office this this uh, this uh, article that, that Gina Colada wrote, and it said, you know, it had a man leaning on the back of his red Camaro, and it said, you know, now most men don't have definitive therapy. And so a lot of Americans, they read the New York Times, and if it's in there, they, they say, okay, it's the right thing to do. And so it's just an antidote that that the way that we even think of pro prostate cancer once you've been diagnosed has changed. 
And therefore, I think there's there's more men who aren't necessarily as afraid of that diagnosis because they now think of it in terms of a, a chronic disease like diabetes or hypertension that you just have to keep track of rather than something that may be life-altering in terms of uh, a radical treatment to re- treat the whole prostate, remove it, and so forth. Um, and so so I think that there's that knowledge has probably led more men to uh, be more accepting of at least knowing. And, and one of the for instance, American Urological Association worked in concert with uh, the National Football League and oftentimes does things with sports associations because men often, of course, you know, listen to or watch these sports. And one of the, the campaigns was know your stats, just saying that, you know, if you know, it's the, the knowledge is better than, than ignorance. And, and so there's still, unfortunately, some segments of the population where people aren't getting screened or tested. But I think that, that there's been a the pendulum has swung swung back from no screening at all to where it's an individualized choice where you have a discussion with the man about what are the pros and cons of screening. And I think that threshold for, for not getting tested or going to onto a biopsy has become lower. Now, a biopsy takes typically about 10, 10 minutes if you're using a more sophisticated technique, that MR-guided technique that we spoke of sooner. Mm-hmm. It is uncomfortable, though. I mean, you have a, a probe that's a little uh, thicker in diameter than one's thumb in the rectum for about 10 minutes. And Despite the fact we numb it up, some some men find it to be very uncomfortable. There's going to be blood in the ejaculate for about two months afterwards, blood in the urine for about two weeks. And so for some men, that's that's very alarming for them to see blood in the ejaculate, which reminds me of an antidote. You know, a famous urologist once said the cure for blood in the ejaculate is just to turn off the lights. And so <laughs> so but but it's, it will eventually resolve. But again, that's something that's distressing because we've never seen that in one's lifetime. Mm-hmm. So, so there are the the implication here is that there are clearly, uh, you know, men where you will say, you know, we should pursue this, we should pursue a biopsy beyond uh, individual choice or preferences, and clearly men who you're not going to pursue a biopsy or you're going to advise against screening, and you alluded to that, and it sounds like age-based guidelines are are part of it. But who are the men who you would say you shouldn't get screened or you know, you can maybe get a PSA check, but maybe not be less likely to pursue a biopsy because you're probably not going to have something that at the end of the day, we're going to want to intervene with. And I know there are a lot, there's a lot of gray area here, but kind of just in a rough sense, it'd be helpful to, to hear. Absolutely. So, so I, I think the, the person, the guidelines are that if you're 70 or older, mm-hmm. that you don't need a prostate biopsy. And that goes back to the traditional, if your life expectancy is less than 10 years, then we shouldn't really look for prostate cancer. I think the challenge of that is that no matter how good these life calculators are, you know, and 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 I know why we do that. The, these the forty thousand foot view of using of using seventy years as a threshold, but as you and you're a busy clinician, I know, and you, you see some seventy five year olds, and they they look like they're sixty five, and I think our society is 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 now there's the the term ageism out there, and so I think you have to assess there's chronologic age versus biologic age. And in particular, where you practice also has a big influence. For instance, here, we're in New York City. We're fortunate to have very sophisticated patients. And very honestly, I think it's harder to, you know, tell these guys, hey, this is the guidelines. We should stop doing PSA testing because, you know, people here are very sophisticated. I think they would know what to do with the knowledge of what that PSA is or if they had inolent prostate cancer and they naturally want to know. I, I think a lot of people think that they have a good shot of getting to 100. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think in some health systems across the country where there's more accountable care organizations where, where, for instance, there may be alert, you know, you automatically in your electronic medical record, if you're ordering a PSA on the electronic medical record, you're going to get a, a window pops up that says, 
do you know that this is not guideline medicine and 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 keeps track maybe of how many PSAs you're ordering. So some of these health system effects, I think, dictate that. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but to your point, I, I still have a very thorough discussion with everyone, but tell them that the experts recommend not getting a biopsy above the age of 70. Great. So we're going to wrap up soon because we're running out of time, but I want to I want to ask you two two questions and in a second I'll get to just your high points on therapy and and new things there. But I want to I want to get your sense of um, maybe from the standpoint of someone who's got uh, again your background in in looking at these and developing these guidelines, you know, at a big picture level and this comes up with mammography, it comes up with other areas now, what's your take on the the concept of guidelines panels? These are sorts of things that um, are obviously they get out there. Obviously, they they can be often controversial and and have different uh, recommendations. Some people you know worry about conflicts of interest in these panels. Kind of give us give me your sense of of your take on how you view the, kind of the pros and cons of these guidelines panels when they come out, and, and so that you can put them in context for people who may read read the next ones that come out and try to interpret what to do with it. Absolutely. And I think that's a, obviously a very timely question as we get to the conflicts of interest story. I think that guidelines need to be there because a lot of payers, a lot of health systems, insurance companies, there's not going to be a randomized trial for everything. And, and therefore, expert consensus is going to be the the best thing that's out there. For instance, when we, when we look at the, the NCCN or the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, that's those are prostate cancer guidelines. There aren't only urologists who may want to operate on everyone. Of course, I say that with a grin on my face. There's also medical oncology representation. There's the radiation oncologist, and so so I think that they're still helpful. Uh, but but I think it's important. Our our the ethos or culture of our country is that that individuals have a choice, and that's still the case. Although one can see, you know, every year we can see how how much healthcare is part of the GDP, and that that I think things are ratcheted back, but. But I think guidelines are still important, and I, I think they're well-meaning people that that try to try to do the best thing. Great. So, just in the last uh, thirty seconds or so, what are the big high points that you would say um, a patient diagnosed with prostate cancer or concerned about prostate cancer, as far as therapy, should know about? And I know you're involved in a number of these kind of cutting-edge uh, sorts of treatments. Um, what's top of mind that people should think about or that you're excited about uh, sure. now in the future? Sure. So I think first people should take a deep breath and relax. You know, the 10-year survival, if someone's diagnosed with prostate cancer is 95%, five-year survival is 99%. So just know that you have time to make the best choice. Secondly, you want to seek out an experienced person regardless of what they do, whether it's a active surveillance to do biopsies. Uh, you know, you alluded to new technologies. Now there's partial gland ablation where you're not treating the entire prostate. That's a radical departure in how we treated it. It's kind of like the, the paradigm in breast cancer in the 1970s of starting to do lumpectomies rather than to remove the entire breast. And so key thing for that is that it's an emerging paradigm. We don't really have a lot of evidence. In fact, going back to guidelines, you know that they say that there's not enough evidence to really make a, a suggestion to do it. So understand that you should be doing it on a clinical trial setting. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I want to thank you. There's been a great discussion. I've learned a lot. And I know that our audience, uh, many people out there are thinking about these issues for themselves or for their loved ones. And uh, um, it sounds like it's going to continue to be challenging. But uh, thank you for your perspectives, which I think, um, you know, the balance that you've kind of laid out for us, I think is important to keep in mind. And at the end of the day, like most things, I think you want to see a, a get educated as a patient and really, you know, speak with somebody who can present the pros and cons of any 
any of these uh, situations to you well and make an individualized decision. So, so thanks very much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, John. It's great to chat with you and the audience out there. Well, I want to thank our audience for, for joining us today and uh, want to encourage you to download, subscribe, rate, and review CancerCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or online at wildcornell.org. We also encourage you to write to us at cancercast at med.cornell.edu with questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to cover in more depth in the future. That's it today for CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm Dr. John Leonard. Thanks for tuning in. If you or a loved one is undergoing cancer treatment, rehabilitation medicine can help with recovery and ease painful side effects. Listen to Back to Health, Wild Cornell Medicine's podcast series dedicated to rehabilitation medicine to learn more about the ways physiatrists can help. All information contained in this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes. The information is not intended nor suited to be a replacement or substitute for professional medical treatment or for professional medical advice relative to a specific medical question or condition. We urge you to always seek the advice of your physician or medical professional with respect to your medical condition or questions. While Cornell Medicine makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or efficiency of the information featured in this podcast and any reliance on such information is done at your own risk participants may have consulting equity board membership or other relationships with pharmaceutical biotech or device companies unrelated to their role in this podcast no payments have been made by any company to endorse any treatments devices or procedures and while cornell medicine does not endorse approve or recommend any product service or entity mentioned in this podcast opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the perspectives of while cornell medicine as an institution